0: Uh, I need to get my tricycle back from you because I uh, maybe ran into your mailbox on accident. Eh? You know, I brought my buddies with me. Uh, we got the Bomber Mafia together and, you know, we got this big cartoonish bomb that we could try and pinpoint at your house. But otherwise, I'm going to have to call my Uncle Curtis and he's going to... P- bomb your entire street because he's not very accurate with his bombs but you know how that goes
1: no 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 sir sir I'm sorry give me I'll my, move my mailbox give me the tricycle back you can have it it's fine leave my kneecaps in my house and leave that cartoonish bomb in it's holster I don't know <laughs> <laughs> alright boys let's yeah. roll back out of here we got all we need I want like a little like ting ting like of the bell <laughs> zuki did not like that one you don't like curtis lemay bombing entire city zuki neither do we Yeah, you know, i don't think her japanese namesake either <laughs> no, i don't think so <laughs>
0: hello everybody welcome to the gems of history podcast
1: i'm jacob shop and joining me is evan roosh howdy and hello t- today good morning good afternoon <laughs> good evening today evan's gonna introduce himself for the rest of the show That's actually, it's actually just a full hour of me saying hello in different languages. (laughs) So we are talking
0: about the book that Evan has read recently by a man named Malcolm Gladwell,
1: Mm -hmm. who is an alternative history writer, I would say. Some have said, called it revisionist history, basically just looking back at these extremely popular historic events, if you will, and just making sure that all sides and viewpoints are kind of... Accurately portrayed, like, for example, in the Bomber Mafia, he really goes into the bombing process, uh, particularly from the Allies, uh, as well as kind of comparing, like, the firebombs and the atomic bombs as well, and just kind of going over the different schools of thoughts that were sweeping the U.S. Navy and Air Force when it came to our bombing, um, whether to do more pinpoint stuff or to just carpet bomb and kill hundreds of thousands. which. <laughs> is what we have ended ended up doing it's an extremely interesting book i highly suggest it uh if you're interested i mean all i just think once you reach a certain age all dudes for sure just get super into world war Two. for some like i literally had a conversation with this random woman at a
0: bar who was a uh, she taught history for like fourth graders i think yeah and i was talking to her and i was like so like what about history like what's your favorite type of history to teach She's like, oh, it used to be, like, more modern stuff like World War II, and now it's ancient history. I'm like, I am literally the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah, there's another way that men are different than women, I guess.
1: Right, yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like our show, even. Like, I love a good ancient history story where you're more like, let's talk about Blair Witch Mountain, or not Blair Witch Mountain, Blair Mountain, like stuff like that, so multiple viewpoints of history are good exactly well all the stuff about ancient history is like we don't know there's a <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> every every story ends with but we don't have the text it could be completely different than we are saying right now but this is what we think do you think that's one of the awesome things about just the internet and like online archives is that yeah you can't burn something that's in the cloud it's in the cloud yeah you can try your darndest it's in the collective brain of a the entire world now so of bill gates's internet yes so unless we get solar flared out of existence then then it'll be gone but it's the solar flare and the yellowstone super volcano that i just randomly will get super like i'll just be driving yeah i'll just be driving to work and just be listening to like a random podcast probably like a comedy podcast maybe even a history podcast huh weird there's other ones? No, just ours. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Glad- Gladwell literally has one called Revisionist History. So. There you go. But yeah, and then I was thinking about those super disasters. It's like, oh, I'm scared now. Existential crisis. Right. But the episode as a whole today is going to be really about the evolution of airplanes and how they were used particularly in war, specifically in World War I and World War II, because that's where they first got introduced. Uh, and in particular, like the bombing and how... We talk about scientific revolutions quite a bit on the show. We love talking about science, but it's just one of those things uh, with humankind that whenever it's war, innovation is nuts. Yeah. Like we literally learned how to split an atom, like the foundation of life Just so we can make something to destroy life.
0: Yeah, it's. I listened. I didn't read the book, but I listened to a bunch of interviews with Malcolm Gladwell where he discusses the book on like newscasts and other podcasts and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the points that he made was like we designed, or we made a plan to specifically avoid mass bombings like those barbaric airstrikes, and ended up using one of the most devastating weapons in the w- history of the world on a giant mass of civilians.
1: Yeah. I mean, we did it. If you count the fire bombings, we did probably, I think we do have the record quote unquote for like yeah. the top three, Yep. Most devastating bombs. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But yeah, we'll be getting into all of that
0: today. And Evan is going to start us off by mm-hmm. kind of going through the transition of how we got from World War One, yeah. very crude planes, and not not the. Mo- it was mostly strategic, like surveys of yeah. land and stuff. And then how we got from that to the B twenty nine
1: two, and then what would eventually be like the Tsar Bomba right? yes, <laughs> for like exactly. the Russians to get to a whole new level. But to start our story off, I mean, just the airplane in general, it existed for over a full decade uh, before the breakout of World War I. We, of course, had the Wright Bros making that advancement and really giving humans the first ever time like in air, like sustained air. Uh, but, of course, as with all kind of cool things... I don't know if... Have you, like ever been up close next to a recreation
0: of the plane that they flew i have not okay so when we went to uh now i'm just gonna completely blank on where this was oh when we were in chicago we went to the uh the big museum in chicago and they had like a recreation of the plane and it's literally you laying next to an exposed motor with a like a couple levers that control
1: everything how? No, <laughs> and then you watch a movie like the most recent Top Gun. Yeah, all the gadgets and gizmos. There's literally flares and like missile locking technology. And it started out as like three levers. Yeah, and an engine left, right,
0: brake contained in a wooden, like a wooden shell with canvas
1: wings. <laughs> <laughs> They're they were literally just flying matchboxes, flying by the seat of their pants. But with the invention of the airplane, both sides of the conflict. Quickly realized that these flying little fun things could definitely be used for some war things, and scientists and engineers worked tirelessly throughout the entire First World War to develop faster, bigger, stronger fighters as well as bombers. And the idea of air superiority—this is when that first kind of comes to comes to a head in 1914, and. This is the first year and first conflicts that air super, excuse me, that air superiority, and winning the quote unquote like war in the skies, became a essentially a necessity.
0: Well, it made in the war. It made artillery pretty much obsolete. And right? I mean, before they got planes, they were literally going up in hot air balloons as high as they could to mm-hmm. like see as much of the enemy setup as possible from where they were so that they could kind of do
1: reconnaissance from the air. But... And before that, they had to have some, someone climb a tree, the tallest <laughs> tree in the forest, to see where everyone was at. Just go up in a hot air balloon, one of the most
0: shoot-downable things in the history of the world, and hope that you don't die. Name
1: one balloon that has ever bursted into flames. The Hindenburg. But yeah, to your <laughs> kind point. Kind of a balloon, <laughs> Yes. In my mind, it's just it's a big balloon. It's just a balloon. giant steel balloon, yes. It's a huge, like, engineering achievement, but on the show, it's a <laughs> it's silly a, little balloon. It's a little balloon. Balloon. <laughs> uh, in World War I, the main military role of aircraft was actually reconnaissance. Uh, specifically, like Jacob mentioned, hot air balloons had been deployed by the military to get that bird, bird's eye view of the battlefield. Uh, and hot air balloons were actually even used during the Civil War before that. But the fixed-wing airplanes of World War I were actually able to fly deeper and higher, uh, and more specifically, just getting farther into enemy lines to actually track troop movements and map terrain. So they're doing more than just, hey, look at the battalion of people. They're actually being able to see where the enemy is going and map it out through the different roads or canals, where they're using. To see where they were going, when they were gonna get there, all that stuff. They could really penetrate the enemy now. You get deep on in there. Um, and these these types of aircrafts were literally just these initial war aircrafts were literally just two seat like two seaters with a pilot, of course, doing the flying, and then a guy in the back using binoculars and taking notes on like a sketch pad, do, like do, 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 right do. like Bob Ross with a little i drawing just, funny trees. It's like the people that
0: did the, did the wing walking back in the day. Yeah. I imagine those guys that are just like, do 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 do
1: do 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 And then like, oh, there's an artillery over there. It's getting closer. <laughs> Hancock had a <of> right. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and that's uh, Impression Corner with Evan and <laughs> These handwritten drawings by the two person airplanes weren't always accurate, as you could imagine. But they did prove extremely critical in a lot of World War I operations. Well, yeah,
0: can you imagine trying to draw a handwritten chart of where the enemy is while you're
1: in a plane that's, like, literally a skeleton made of wood? (laughs) Literally could go up in flames at any time. Uh, For example, British reconnaissance planes actually alerted the British and French commanders to German troops preparing for a siege of Paris, and that these troops would be going through Belgium. The Allied armies were then able to coordinate a strategic outflanking of the Germans, and this resulted in the Battle of the Marnes, which was an extremely critical victory for the British and French troops. It then wasn't long before cameras became mounted to reconnaissance planes, putting hundreds of thousands of sketch artists out of work, <laughs> these out little, of their military contracts. These little page boys that got hired on <laughs> to sit on a wing of a plane. <laughs> Just with their Crayola crayons. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah, and then Kodak comes in. <laughs> we'll take over. So with the introduction of actual cameras, you know the increasingly sharp and zoomed in images now gave field commanders an unprecedented amount of intelligence to be able to position artillery more accurately and then plan troop movements a lot more effectively. It is insane how we went from literally using planes just for recon into
0: a main source of how we defeated people with artillery
1: shells dropped from the air instead of fired from the ground. Right. I mean, it went from guessing to where the enemy's at. No, he's right there. Drop the bombs. Drop the bombs. It is kind of funny with the start of World War I and with these reconnaissance planes, they were almost considered like a novelty, if you will. And so that enemy pilots, so say I'm German and you're French and... Oh, sacre bleu. <laughs> and we're like flying next to each other ready to do our little sketches. They would actually always wave at each other. Oh, hello. Because they knew like at that point, I mean, no one's going to shoot us down. Except didn't take too long for the generals to be like, we should probably shoot the other guys down. And, hey, why
0: don't you uh, get your gun and <laughs> shoot that guy in
1: the head? <laughs> uh, there's actually no such thing like as a true fighter plane until 1915, so a full year after planes were introduced to World War I. But after the Battle of the Marne, like we talked about before, commanders began to take seriously the idea of Killing the other pilots. And in early skirmishes, these slow moving reconnaissance planes would take just kind of random shots at each other with basic service pistols and rifles. It's <laughs> kind of amazing. It's awesome, actually. Do you think any of them actually like? Can you imagine just seeing a plus 50 after you take a random shot? I was just like going to.
0: This reminds me so much of Battlefield 1 with the giant blimps and that stuff like that. That is my
1: favorite. One of my favorite
0: games. It's I love so, that much game so much fun, like infiltrating those giant blimp machine things with the huge gun turrets and just taking people out that don't know you're there. Oh, it's uh, such a fun game. I don't know if
1: that's accurate if they had those giant <laughs> blimp gunneries, but. Right. In fact, ground crews actually started to mount machine guns in front of, like, observers' positions on the plane. But, as you can imagine, it's very hard to shoot a full automatic machine gun around propeller wings. Yeah. So this, initially, this led to the self-destruction of quite a few planes. <laughs>
0: and also you're supposed to be an observer and charting where the enemy is then you've just got this massive gun sitting in front of you now
1: right it's like i work for the new york times and you're giving me a machine gun thank you so much for the pen is mightier than the sword <laughs> the pen is not mightier mightier than a lg-42 <laughs>
0: just throws his pen at the other enemy pilot and takes down a plane <laughs> all right i guess maybe not
1: mm-hmm However, this was quickly solved with the invention of the interrupter gear, or the synchronization gear, which allowed a front-mounted machine gun to now fire a continuous barrage of bullets safely through the plane's propellers. How the hell do you figure that out? I'd assume trial and error. I can't (laughs) imagine being the person that has to be the trial. It's like the trial guy. The guy trying out a bulletproof vest for the first time. (laughs) Oh, oh, he rolled the dice big time. I hope you hit it. Right. He's like, I'm either going to be a bazillionaire or dead. Yep. It was actually the Dutch-born engineer Anthony Fokker, uh, who was credited with developing the first synchronized gear for the German army, which he mounted on the single seat Fokker E1 in 1915. This lightweight plane was so nimble and deadly that the Allies quickly nicknamed it the Fokker Scourge. It is kind of insane that it's always Germany. That's got the better planes. They are. I mean, they're just how they go from like barbaric Germanic tribes to literally the world's best craftsmen Being and ruled engineers by a
0: series of inbreds to just like absolutely insane at fighting in
1: modern war. Dude, they always want to fight. That, <laughs> that is, is true. Al- that's just historic. Don't be mad at me.
0: They've <laughs> always been good at war, but the fact that they're able to get ahead and innovate to get into, like, modern warfare is kind of insane. but
1: Yeah. But they're still 0-2 in World War's (laughs) scoreboard. Whoa. This introduced, so the introduction of the Fokker Scourge, the Fokker E-1, was the first time planes took to the air with the sole purpose of air-to-air combat. And the French began calling any pilot who shot down five or more enemy planes an ICE or ACE. Okay. Now, while these aces had no shortage of, you know, incredible skills, hand-eye coordination, the winners of most early dogfights were actually just the pilots with the better technology, a.k.a. the Germans. And once this idea of we can put guns on planes became practical, feasible, done at scale even... This is what really started the, uh, the arms race for air superiority. And it all came down to improving the performance of an airplane. So how easy does it handle? What's it equipped with in terms of guns? Can it climb? Like, climb fast. Uh, climb air. Altitude. Alt- <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> climb air. Climb air. Altitude. There's a word for it. Con air. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. Hey, back to old Nick. Uh, all of all these factors became, you know, very prevalent in just this constant struggle to one-up the enemy with uh, the newest technology. Allied engineers eventually did respond with their own single-seat fighters, like the British-made Sopwith Camel, named for the hump-shaped bulge in its fuselage to fit two mounted synchronized machine guns. So the British saw, oh, there's only one machine gun on the German one. What if we went akimbo? <laughs> Probably still lost to the Germans. Right. Uh, Sopwith then introduced a three-winged triplane. The Germans, in turn, answered with the Fokker DR1, which was the same plane that won a man Manfred von Richtofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron. Oh, okay. Like the pizza brand. Like the pizza brand. <laughs> Fun fact, that pizza brand is uh, supporting a German who is credited with eighty official kills, wow! And he was known, of course, for his distinct red airplane. Do you think there's an American sniper movie, but about him? Oh, there's for sure propaganda, like there a has German to propaganda be. film. Oh, i kind of want to. I don't. Know, I kind of want to see it. To he be does honest. make good flatbread pizzas, so incredible, and they're so crunchy. I love how
0: a German guy who did really good in war got associated with an Italian cuisine.
1: <laughs> that was actually one of the uh, selling points for Mussolini and Hitler to join forces in World War II. It's like, hear me out, great business idea. So naturally, we associate aerial bombings with events such as like the Blitzkrieg tactics from Germany or, of course, the US of A. We were good at it. Destroying Japan. But the first targeted bombing campaign actually occurred in 1915 when Germany sent high-altitude Zeppelin airships, so these, t- these little balloons, in my opinion. So they did have blimp gunner stations, I suppose. They did. They did. And they would do nighttime bombing raids of the civilian targets in London and Edinburgh. These hydrogen-filled Zeppelins were used for reconnaissance initially, like most aircraft in World War I, but they could cut their engines to carry out surprise attacks so it wasn't like a big old bzzz in the air. Like Attack closed. on
0: Titan in the last season. I love Attack on Titan.
1: The British, the British media quickly forsook these Zeppelins and went to calling them baby killers. Oh. Right. Since the military, and then the military finally deployed... Dedicated fighter planes armed with incendiary bullets. Again, this is the first time incendiary bullets are now a thing. But not the first time that the German military is going to be called baby killers. They are known for their great craftsmanship and slaughtering people that they don't like. Killing a bunch of people. Mm. The first ever bomber planes actually began their careers as reconnaissance aircraftmen and typically flew or began to fly more and more, planes that were loaded with additional weaponry as they had to also fight their way back from enemy lines. So with early bombers and just bombers in general, you have to find a way to get back. Like, you getting there is typically fine and dandy. It's usually at night. People usually don't know you're coming. But when they do know you're coming, they scramble their attack planes. You're essentially a sitting duck. Yeah, And so... Just with the arms race notion that we're talking about, it went from, oh, they'll just drop some bombs. Oh, these bombers will now have guns. Oh, these bombers with bombs and guns will now have men arming more guns. And then so on and so forth to nuclear bomb. I do imagine
0: that the early, quote unquote, dogfights in the sky were kind of like Three
1: Stooges skits, or. Sh- burp burp.
0: Oh, yeah, and everyone's
1: like chasing each other around. I bet the reenactments are literally just like people holding little toy airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) The Germans eventually built their own massive bomber called the Zeppelin Stocken RVI, which was a biplane with a wingspan of 138 feet, carried nine crew members, weighed Or, excuse me, and dropped bombs that weighed more than 2,200 pounds. Big boy. It said that one of these bombs, one of these bombs, had a direct hit and completely destroyed the Royal Hospital at Chelsea, which is huge. All those soccer players gone. How are they going to win the Premier League? (laughs) (sighs) Unbelievable. Name all those, one... Sorry, all those football players. God. Name one Premier League player. Couldn't, American. Couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I
0: couldn't. <laughs> I, know nothing, I about,
1: could. know nothing about the European soccer leagues. We man. literally just lost all of our international audience. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Sayonara. Auf Wiedersehen. By the end of World War I, it was now a foregone conclusion that airplanes were the weapon of the future. Then in 1918, Allied bombers were already flying in group formations to attack German munitions factories along the French border. And German fighters were deployed and forced to wage epic air battles. So, what started in 1914 as just some fellas waving to each other as they passed each other, just drawing some maps, became absolute hell in the sky. This essentially set the stage for World War II, where air superiority. And who could have the biggest bomb ultimately decided the fate of the world. Not an exaggeration either. It truly, it truly is. I mean, for example, we I think we've talked about this before, but the US literally not having any damage to its infrastructure made us a world power. Pretty much, yeah. It let us come onto the scene. I mean, we never had a single enemy troop on our land. One of the biggest reasons we did defeat Japan was because of planes. Right. For sure, it's a lot easier
0: to get three hundred bombers over Japan than it is to get an f- entire fleet of ships there. So <laughs>
1: just on one like beach, yeah. <laughs> so by the time World War II had started, planes had advanced enough to be able to fill specific niche operations. For example, during World War II, the primary missions fulfilled by airplanes were air-to-air combat, bombing, reconnaissance. As well as troop and supply transportation, so again, what started as two-seaters, just drawing maps with three lovers, three lovers, not lovers, hello, <laughs> now it became, you could transfer entire divisions on these planes, and like, paratroops became a thing now too, like, dropping actual boots on the ground behind enemy lines, so... The arms race and the advancement of the airplane just completely took off um, between World War I and World War II.
0: Pun intended.
1: I love that I don't always catch my puns, but you always do. <laughs> <laughs> you are...
0: I'm, I have to.
1: <laughs> you are the wind to my wings. Another one. Heyo, DJ Khaled. <laughs> <laughs> a, British, a British study... About World War II bombings, actually showed that Royal Air Force bombing, which was typically inaccurate, actually only got or only 20% of air crews could actually navigate to within five miles of their assigned target. This report led to a major shift in Britain's bombing strategy, shifting away from military targets and towards the main residential and, and industrial centers in Germany. So, Between World War One and World War II, it actually was a there was a movement for more humanitarian bombing, if you will. So nighttime raids on strategic factory locations to cut off supply of the actual war effort. Because if you can't make guns, you can't shoot guns. However, the Royal Air Force during the early days of World War Two found that they couldn't even get close to their targets. (laughs) And, like, they were, they were targeting entire industrial cities, so it's not like this one factory. They were targeting, like, mega, mega factories. So they basically said,
0: like, oh, what do you mean we can't hit them? Oh, well, if we can't hit them, just blow up the residential
1: areas. Yeah. Kill everybody. Oh, and they did. The Royal Air Force was on, I mean. Everyone was on Everyone one. was on one during this time. The bombing got, or the bombs that were used actually got to be extremely more severe during World War II, as you can imagine. In fact, many Allied bombing runs released the equivalent energy of 300 lightning strikes and actually temporarily weakened the ionosphere. Jesus. I do like that that was their unit of measurement for how good their bombs <laughs> you know, were. Lightning. How many lightning strikes is this equivalent to? Right. And Allied bombing raids left devastating marks all over Germany by the end of World War II. Killing more than 400 civilians and laying waste to entire cities from Berlin to Hamburg to Dresden. And these bombings were so intense, uh, now according to recent research, that they sent shockwaves all the way to the edge of space. Nice. And again, weakened the Outermost layer of Earth's atmosphere, the ionosphere. So these bombs got so intense and so crazy that we just destroyed part of the altitude or part of the uh the atmosphere. Thank you, the altitude. Now you got altitude. Yeah, now altitude on the brain. It went from air
0: to altitude yeah. to atmosphere.
1: By studying daily records at the Radio Research Center in Slough in the UK. A team of researchers actually tracked the concentration of electrons in the ionosphere changed around the time of 152 Allied air raids in Europe, which included some of the biggest bombing raids uh, the Earth has ever seen, as well as bombs dropped in support of the major Allied landing at Normandy on D-Day. Good job, humanity. (laughs) Right. And during the conflicts, the Royal Air Force, aka the RAF, and other Allied planes could carry much more weight than the German bombers and planes. This allowed them to deploy such monster bombs, also known as, or excuse me, including the Grand Slam, which weighed 22,000 pounds, and with each of one of these bombs. They left a crater 70 feet deep and 130 feet around. But yeah, this is also around the same time where America is
0: like trying to kind of change up what they're doing too. So everyone's kind of figuring out what can we do more efficiently than the other guys?
1: Right, And that's a huge thing of what like the bomber Mafia is about. It takes you through the journey of the school of thought and the people that wanted to change the bombing routines, just because, I mean, there were more, there's always more civilians in both World War I and World War II. There were more civilians killed than combat personnel oh, by a lot. Yeah, <laughs> And so the entire uh, Navy and Air Force and anyone involved using planes kind of did like take World War I into account with redoing their strategy. Like there was a huge push to redo the strategy to only focus on focal points, and where can we be the most effective with our very expensive bombs. And the group in the United States that really led the charge to change the bombing strategy actually became known as the Bomber Mafia.
0: Hey, that's us.
1: Oh, no, not the seven-year-old. Come on,
0: boys. We're back in the game.
1: (laughs) But this group of ambitious and influential officers at the Air Corps Tactical School at Maxwell Field Attempted to explore the viability of strategic bombing, engaging in the latest military developments, or excuse me, using the latest military developments, known as the Norden bombsites. So think, think of these
0: guys as the dreamers of the situation these guys are
1: trying to innovate how we do everything as far as we know for air superiority right now and it included a lot of younger officers too that were just getting into their new roles as more superior or having superior roles in their respective branches so they were going up against i mean for lack of a better word like the old heads yeah, these
0: guys were pretty ahead of their time for mm-hmm. what the technology was at the time and who was in charge and what their plans were. So it, it was just kind of a bad time for them to get into this thought process of, hey, how about we revolutionize the entire way we think about this so right. we can make it more effective at the same time safer? But yeah, it just it wasn't feasible. When they first initially had the idea. And that's kind of what bit them in the butt.
1: And with the Norden bomb site, so it was invented by another Dutch engineer. Shout out the Dutch. They were on top of it. Uh, And his name was Carl Norden. Uh, And this new bomb site made it possible to actually hit a target the size of a barrel from a six mile altitude. So you're hitting, you're basically placing a bomb in a barrel from six miles up in the sky with this new. New newly developed bomb site. And it paved the way for precision bombing of strategic targets. And with this new mindset, the goal was to minimize the number of civilian casualties. You know, the people that really truly did not sign up for this. And there's just one problem. None of it worked. <laughs> yeah. And even before the United States entered the war, the bomber mafia identified the strategic choke points. That would actually disrupt the German and the Axis powers' opponent, or excuse me, the Axis opponents' war making capabilities. So even before we entered this bad boy, we knew where to target. And like we tried to supply that to the RAF and the French and all the Allied powers, but they couldn't get within five miles (laughs) with their stuff. Uh, And the list of targets, of course, included. Plants, factories, military bases, airports, oil refineries, basically anything to supply a gun or make a truck go. And a tactic creation, or excuse me, a tactic created by precision bombing enthusiasts later became the official game plan for the first daytime bombing mission of the U.S. 8th Army Air Force. And, like you mentioned, It did not work. Yeah, they kind of figured out that, hey, using this controlled airfield
0: where all the conditions are really nice and clean is not the same as going out into a battle where
1: everything's going to be chaotic and random. Right, where literally never a plan never goes fully according to plan. Not even close. Not even close. So although precision bombing found numerous supporters due to the humanitarian nature of it, a lot of the older and senior officers were not impressed with the capabilities. Like you mentioned, it was still very hard to actually hit the target. And instead of daytime bombing runs, they advocated for morale, or excuse me, moral nighttime raids.
0: Yeah, let's hit them when they're sleeping. When they're that sleeping. Seems more ethical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One of the ardent supporters of the carpet bombing ideology was Colonel Curtis LeMay. As commander of the Regensburg attacks, he got to implement the Norden bomb site during the Regensburg bombing raid, uh, which, again, was one of the first ones that we did in Germany. I noticed that he failed to mention that his nickname was Old Iron Ass. Old Iron <laughs> Ass, that's right. <laughs> Honestly, what a strong name, to be, <laughs> to be quite that's frank. That's because
0: he is very hard and kills a lot of people. <laughs>
1: uh, however, the new... Technology promoted by swivel chair target analysts did not strike the fancy of Colonel Curtis LeMay. The Colonel quickly pinpointed major flaws in the strategic bombing run of Regensburg, and these included, of course, it was very difficult to execute. In addition, the Norden sights became impossible to use in bad weather because targets were barely discernible. He deemed his mission completely unsuccessful since it resulted also in massive aircraft aircraft losses. So not only did they not hit anything, they also lost, you'll have to read the book for the exact numbers, but they lost a lot of men on these bombing <laughs> yeah. raids, these early bombing raids particularly. General Haywood Hansel, who was of course a spokesman for precision bombing, as well as a prominent member of the bomber mafia, had an opportunity to change the course of history. He believed in the power of aviation technology and and was one of those who fully endorsed the bomb site. And as the head of the U.S. bomber unit in England, he was responsible for the implementation of the bomb sites during airstrikes to German industrial sites. Due to his experience and humanitarian approach to these different air raids, he was appointed to be the commander of the B29 superfortress base located on the Mariana Islands. This unit's goal was to destroy Japan's military infrastructure prior to a large-scale land invasion. So, it didn't really work in Germany. And so they thought, why not try it in Japan? <laughs> and according to like this super for- according to the book, this superfortress airbase it's, it's on the Mariana Islands, which are islands, yeah. naturally, so not a lot of room to build an actual air base. And the weather there was always terrible because it's in the middle of an island or middle of the ocean. In the Pacific, yeah. In the Pacific, the literally the most unpredictable ocean
0: in the world. Yeah, but the B-29 kind of was a revolutionary technology for us because we had quick bombers, but these ones could carry so many more bombs and were still as fast. So it was kind of a huge thing for us to get these bombers, and we used them
1: for a lot. Yeah, that's for sure. Unfortunately, Hansel's plans to use the Boren sites went to waste. Although early attempts to reach Japan proved possible, the bombers faced destabilizing winds that later became known as jet streams. On top of that, his unit faced various issues with the bomber planes themselves. Poor quality and design imperfections led to frequent breakdowns. Plus, when they were actually carrying a bombing load, they needed a strong wind to take off. Given the challenging mission conditions, Hansel hesitated to take action when he was ordered to drop bombs on the Japanese city of Nagoya. Due to this hesitation, Hansel was quickly kicked out of his position on the Marianas Islands, and this led to the appearance of Curtis LeMay, who by then was a general for his work in the European campaign. He took command of the Mariana Islands Air Base and immersed himself in eliminating the causes that inhibited Japanese-bound air raids. For example, he ordered the gun crews to remain at the base to make more room for deadly bombing cargo. Besides that, the pilots discovered that they could avoid jet streams if they kept an altitude of 5,000 feet. LeMay was essentially the ultimate problem solver. So he came in, kind of whipped everyone back into shape, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell actually compares him to a... Bulldog, who finds a target and removes any obstacles on his way to achieve this target. Yeah, because their
0: practice runs for bombing on Japan, like they dropped bombs, and the bombs literally went into the ocean because they got steered so far off course by the winds and stuff. So
1: he was like, okay, fly lower, and we'll go in at night, and it'll be fine. While the Japanese bombing plans were in their preparatory stages... This is when scientists at Harvard University, shout out Harvard, created another intimidating weapon, napalm. Yep. Napalm burns at a temperature of 1,000 degrees and is essentially able, or excuse me, effectively able to create hell on earth for whoever gets hit by it. Yeah, imagine silly string that burns. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. It is, and it just doesn't go out. Nope. Like, you can't put out napalm. It sticks to your skin. (laughs) Yes. Once this new development was created, we quickly use it for bombs. So, napalm loaded bombs embarked on their deadly journey to the Mariana Islands at the end of 1944. And a few months later, on March 9th, 1945, the first of them were used in tokyo so
0: tokyo was chosen specifically so when everyone was getting ready for bombing in japan i mean we had plans already in place to go in through the air just to kind of get superiority already and we wanted to avoid doing that naval invasion like the land invasion or sea invasion pretty much just because it was the logistics of it is way harder as i mentioned than doing it with planes so there are specific targets painted on japan's landscape that were chosen specifically for napalm bombs because they knew these are majority made of wooden structures so it'll burn very easily and there's usually a decent amount of wind in these locations that will help accelerate
1: these bombs and just push everything throughout the city Right, And Tokyo was still, like you mentioned, completely built out of wood and in the same style that it was for the last hundreds of years. So yeah. Japanese architecture and infrastructure, like all these houses literally do not have space between them. They are all connected in very long, tight, tightly packed, like alleyways. And if you add just a little bit of wind It's, like, deadly, but if you add a lot of wind, it's extremely deadly. So they did test runs
0: to see, like, can we do this if we fly at 5,000 feet instead of higher up? And it worked. So then they made the plans. They waited for a forecast to tell them, okay, it's probably going to be windy this day. And then they targeted a specific location in the city to plan it so that the wind, they would do it downwind so that all of the wind would push it throughout the city and cause as much damage as possible. And Mm. that was their plan. They knew this was a civilian center and they wanted to kill as many people and destroy as much property as humanly possible with this. Yes. Because they had already kind of been doing bombing raids up to this point, but Japanese officials were kind of being stubborn about not surrendering. And America, we've mentioned this in the past, wanted nothing but unconditional surrender from Japan. Mm Mm-hmm. So even if they would have come to terms, like some sort of compromise, we wouldn't have taken it. So they needed to destroy as much of Japan as possible in their eyes. And this was the end result.
1: Yeah, the gosh, the napalm bombing of Tokyo actually took more lives than the atomic bomb, which we're about to talk about. But yeah, gosh, I cannot. And like we just. As a nation, just don't really talk about it either. Well, and
0: Japan doesn't either. Uh, There's uh,
1: an article from the New York Times that highlights
0: one of the guys that was a survivor of the napalm bombs. His name was... His name was Katsumoto Saatomi, Mm -hmm. and his family was in Tokyo when the bombing happened. And he said the only reason that his family was in Tokyo is because they evacuated half of the civilians, but his the birthday that they needed to be in the evacuation group didn't line up. So he was stuck in Tokyo with the rest of the group. Mm. And he says, yeah, we were woke up by the air raid sirens one night and they had gone off before, but this time it was different and they could see that there's already fires going and stuff. And he looked up and saw the planes. He's like, it just looked like there was a bunch of giant like fish in the sky like flying overhead. Yeah. All all of them dropping bombs and yeah, he just said it was devastating. There was one report from a different source that I read that said there was a a woman that survived and her whole family luckily survived somehow, but her father and her specifically were running through the streets. They could see like people, literal fireballs of people running through the streets. Hey. She said she saw there was a woman carrying a baby on her back, and like while the woman was running, the baby was on fire on her mm. back, and she didn't even realize it because just everything was on fire. And eventually, there's a bunch of people trying to get away, and they kind of toppled over each other and fell on top of this father and daughter. And the father and daughter were at the bottom of the pile, and eventually everyone stopped moving and making noise, and they've dug their way out of a literal pile of people. And found that they were the only ones left alive because the other people had protected them.
1: Yeah, you have to understand that this was by far the deadliest bombing run, bombing occasion, bombing event of history. Yeah, 100,000 people died. In this bombing room. In a night. Like Six, in a night. 16 miles of Tokyo was destroyed yeah. in one night. Burned alive or suffocated to death from smoke.
0: Millions of homes destroyed. Uh, but there's really, and Sao Tomi kind of talks about how he's upset with the older generations because no one really came and talked about this. Mm-hmm. Like people obviously came out and talked about the nuclear bombs because that was a new technology. It was kind of a revolutionary thing that it's the only time it's happened in wartime. And nobody really came and talked about the napalm strikes. And he was kind of like, why did no one talk about this? And he was a writer when he was younger. And he went to a lecture with a history professor and asked, why are the nukes talked about, not this? And the, the history professor just said, well, we don't really have a lot of documents on the... We don't have records of the yeah. event, so... Then Satomi took it on himself, and he started organizing eyewitness accounts and survivor accounts from the night, and eventually opened his own little museum right. in Tokyo, and that's the only museum dedicated to the uh, Tokyo firebombing. And it it got in 2018, ten thousand people fewer than ten thousand people visited. It. And compare that to the Hiroshima Memorial uh, in the same year, one point five million people visited that. So. It's still not as highlighted as, nearly as highlighted as the atomic bombs for understandable reasons. It's just, it's tragic that both of them aren't put on the same level Mm -hmm. and remembered the same way.
1: This ultimately led to the August 6th, 1945 date, where the United States dropped the first ever atomic bomb from a B-29 bomber plane called the Enola Gay over the city of Hiroshima. The little boy, as the bomb was named, exploded with 13 kilotons of force, completely leveling five square miles of the city and killing 80,000 people instantly, with tens of thousands dying later from radiation exposure.
0: Yeah, it is understandable that one bomb doing almost as much damage as, I believe, there was like... Hundreds of thousands of bombs for the mm. napalm strikes, so it is understandable. Like one thing did all of the
1: damage that these did, and instantly, like literally, literally a second. Yeah, and eighty thousand people died,
0: and it is not it, like those are the initial numbers. Like people did die from radiation and everything after the fact too. So the numbers for the nukes are probably ultimately higher. Yeah, it's still like 106-digit numbers of people died in this and the, the nukes. So mm-hmm. there's, there's no
1: good way of looking at either one. Right. Then when the Japanese did not immediately surrender after Hiroshima, the United States dropped a second atomic bomb three days later on the city of Nagasaki. This killed 40,000 people on impact, and Nagasaki actually was not the original target for this bomb. American bombers were targeting the city of Kokura, where Japan had one of its largest munition plants, but smoke from the firebombing raids actually obscured the sky, so American planes turned toward the secondary targets, which just happened to be Nagasaki. Yeah, it's... When the smoke is too much to actually bomb an entire city, then it probably should stop bombing. Right, and we didn't mention, like, the firebombing of Tokyo wasn't the only instance of napalm used. Like, we used it, we, Curtis LeMay used it very heavily. Yeah. And it almost, every time it was used, it, in the book, it lays out the percentages, but there was not a percentage under 70% of total city destroyed when it was used. It's insane how effective... Like, the the
0: cities were just... They targeted cities built to burn. And for their credit, they were good at doing that, so... Yeah. But it, Satomi says he's... He, when he organized all of this information and set up the museum, he's like, I'm not looking for an apology from America. I'm just looking for the Japanese government to take accountability for not only not helping the people that survived something like this, but who actively awarded Curtis
1: LeMay for his participation in doing this. Yeah, when LeMay landed in... So Japan did, of course, surrender on August 15th after all these different bombs. But yeah, LeMay was awarded by the Japanese government. Yeah, he was
0: given the first class order of merit uh, of the Grand Cordon of the Rising Sun. Because he helped establish Japanese Air Force units after the war.
1: After he destroyed everything. Yeah. So
0: it's kind of insane that the guy that killed, was he was responsible for almost half a million deaths probably, got awarded by the people that he was targeting. Yeah, that is an absolute wild, I think, wild I think fact. That's, <laughs> I think it's uh, fair for Satomi to be mad I'd be at bitter. the Japanese
1: government for that. I can easily say I would definitely be better. Yeah. But that... And that essentially concludes our episode about airplane evolution and the bomber mafia. I mean, if you haven't read the book, I highly suggest that you that you dig into it. It's extremely good um very easy read, but that kind of concludes concludes the story of just the massive airplane innovation
0: yeah, and uh, I mean, we didn't go into super detail on the nukes because obviously I think you people, know you know people about people the nukes. pretty much know about those, but yeah it's the The firebombing, I think, is something that a lot of people have never really, if they have heard no. of it, it was like a, a quick blurb somewhere, but they haven't really dug into it. It, it. Some of the eyewitness reports that you can find are quite harrowing.
1: You, I mean, you literally cannot picture it unless you've seen it. Like, there's yeah. no way to, there's just no way to imagine what that was, must have been like.
0: And I mean for someone from japan who was a survivor of the event to lobby to the government to try and get funding to just open a museum to remember these people and get refused (laughs) and have to privately fund it himself is kind of insane that he can't find a little more support from the people that are that actively turn their backs essentially on the people that were involved so it's it's sad from that perspective and it's It's sad that it had to be that strategy to end the war, because as we mentioned, you start the war with the idea, hey, let's make this more effective, but also less casualties that don't have to be like civilian casualties that don't have to be involved to by the end of the war in a span of four, five years, six years, depending on when you want to start the timeline to let's. Completely level civilian cities, right so it's it's very 180 from the plan at, at the start it's It's also interesting when you listen to Malcolm Gladwell talk about because he was he went to like barbecues and stuff with senior officials in the air Force and higher ups in the military when he was writing his book and kind of talked to them about the evolution from then to now about how if one of the people at the barbecue who's was at wanted or was a target for oh, right, one yeah. of the enemies, like they would have to pretty much level the entire area to get that one guy if this was World War II. But now you could take out a single guy at that barbecue and everyone else would be fine. That's just how much has changed in it's insane now since then.
1: Yeah. The technology now is just a night and day difference. Like it is so unbelievably accurate now.
0: Yeah. And he's, he said like, we don't know what it's going to be like in 50 years from now. Like, is oh, it going to be all drones? Is it going to be completely, it's, is it going to be completely deficient of a human element at right? that point. Is everything going to kind of run on its own and def- decide, Hey, this target needs to go. Let's take them on now. It'll actually just be battle
1: box for the (laughs) fate of the sky, yes. Yeah. (laughs) So that's scary. Very, 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 but definitely hope you guys like this episode. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, our you can find us on all the social medias. You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at Wadevskys. You can also find us on Instagram. And YouTube and TikTok at Gems of History Podcast. I changed my Twitter name from
0: Midwest Geronimish Bosch to Ron Shoppable. (laughs) I love that. For all my Kim Possible fans.
1: I love that. Yeah, I'm looking at all that spirit. Look at you, clever clever boy. I'm fun. I'm having fun. We're all having fun. But
0: by the time this comes out, we will have released... uh, I'm going to try and do a new thing on our YouTube channel where I do these YouTube shorts kind of highlighting because I know I did in the Facebook group for a little while, I did flashback Fridays for like what
1: happened on this day in history. And that's on Facebook at the Agora.
0: Yes. And I completely forgot to do it like four weeks in a row. And I was like, well, I guess we're done. and, <laughs> and I, just, not- I decided to instead, I'm going to film YouTube shorts and we'll upload them to our TikTok, I'm sure as well. And I'm just going to kind of do the, on the stay in history for we're going to do it there instead. It it just seems like kind of a better medium to translate something like that. You kind of get a visual aspect with it as well. So yeah. So follow us on our YouTube and our TikTok to see stuff like that. Perfect. Perfect. All right. I think that's all we got for you guys this week. Next week, we will be back into the world of true crime. The blood will be spilled.
1: We just talked about millions of people. Dying <laughs> yeah, I guess. Now the blood will be yes, spilled. Yes,
0: now the blood will be spilled, individual blood on like <laughs> maybe 35 women. <laughs> but that's still not good. So I guess you <laughs> look forward to that. You're right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll be back with that next week as long as I can get my notes all organized because whew, it's a mess of a topic. If, if, when you listen to the episode and if you know anything about the topic when we get to it, you'll understand how much of a struggle it can be to try and organize notes (laughs) for this person. But look forward to that next week. Until then, everyone have a great week, and stay polished out there, everybody.